Welcome to Radio Curious. I'm Barry Vogel. We continue our conversations on the effect of racism in the United States and how to end it. Our guest is Bill Durham, a 59-year-old black man originally from Ohio who grew up in a family of civil rights activists who now lives in Mendocino County, California. Bill Durham, a journeyman carpenter, hosts Club FM, a weekly blues, jazz, and rock music program on KMEC Radio in Ukiah, California. In this program, recorded on February 12, 2015, in the studios of Radio Curious, we discuss Bill Durham's experiences being black in America, starting when he was very young, and his ideas now on how to relieve racism. I must have been very young, probably about five. Both my parents were civil rights activists, and I went to a lot of meetings and rallies and stuff, demonstrations. I remember carrying signs before I could read them. And one night we came home from one of these events and someone said something to me and I realized, well, I knew that white people, there was some problem with white people, but I did not understand really what it was. That night, someone said something that led me to realize that their problem was our color. And I still remember, as a little kid, my very first thought was, that's all they could come up with? Is that we're brown? That's the problem? I was stunned. And plus my family even though we're all technically black people, people in my family go from almost white to very dark-skinned. And as a kid, they were all my family. I loved them all. They all loved me. It made no difference. The idea that there was this huge schism around skin color was really outside of my, I don't know, what, what I expected from other people. How old were you when you left Columbus? 20. And then? I um, actually hitchhiked to Berkeley, California. So this would be 1975, 76. Mm -hmm. What drew you to Berkeley? There was a friend of mine that lived in Berkeley. I had never been out west. But you stayed. Actually, yeah. I, I went back to Ohio for about two years, played in a band that was actually a really good band. And I knew enough about music by that point to know that we really had a good thing. And um, um, some of the guys in the band were really, are, are actually, I think they were afraid of success. And I became really frustrated when they when they quit and I thought to myself, well, I know there are people in the Bay Area that really like to play music. And so 
packed up my stuff and moved to the Bay Area to uh, to play music. And since then, you've essentially made your home in California. Yeah. And worked for um, the city of Oakland. Yeah, at one point I did. I worked for uh, the city of Oakland for about six or seven years. I was a building inspector. And then before that, I worked at the permit counter. Before that, I was a carpenter. And before that, I was a, an audio repair technician. <laughs> so, I like your smile when you talk about audio repair technician. It's, it's more dynamic than working at the counter. My, okay, yeah, the smile is. <laughs> I, um, I kind of enjoyed it. it was, it's it's uh, an intellectual exercise, tr- troubleshooting especially electronic equipment. So your experiences, if you can compare them to growing up in a black family, black child, a black man, in Columbus, Ohio, coming to Oakland, California. I really liked Oakland because for the first time, I was in a place where most people were black. When I came to Oakland, it was different. It was really okay to be black in Oakland. I think that's the easiest way to say it. There was way less tension for the most part. What do you mean for the most part? It's still part of the United States. You still have to deal with this um, racist system, especially the criminal justice system. In your experience, how has the... uh racist system manifested uh, against you one day when i was a little kid i was playing after school in the schoolyard this friend of my father's drove my sisters and i home from school and i was playing and not paying attention that mr glover was there waiting i think in a red zone to pick us up And so I heard, I think it was my sister's calling, and I ran over to his car, jumped in the car, and just as I jumped into the car, there was a uh, paddy wagon, this police paddy wagon, pulls up beside us, and this cop leans out the window with his billy club, slams the side of his door with the billy club, and... You know, I don't even want to repeat the things he said to Mr. Glover, but he insulted him and humiliated him um, really, really bad and then threatened to beat him up right there in the street. And so Mr. Glover, being an older black man, he didn't really, he, he, he blamed me for being late. And, and I felt really, really guilty really guilty for having caused this his humiliation i also noticed that the cop had this really funny look on his face that's all i could that's the only category i could put it in when i was a little kid but later later on when i grew up i found out that's what you look like when you're really really drunk you described the reception that you had in Oakland. 
What is the reception that you have had here in Mendocino County since you moved here about 15 years ago? Generally, I find it's hospitable, that's for sure. It's kind of hard to put into words. I often feel like the odd guy, the oddball, like I am the black guy. And I feel um, that that gets noticed a lot. And I also am not sure sometimes I think, is this just you, Bill, or is this really the way people are? I think the first thing and maybe the only thing some people notice about me is that I am black. I guess that bothers me because I am so much more than that. I wish people would look at me as a human being and not say or and not put me into categories or make assumptions about me based on um, what they see on the outside. I don't know how to say it. I, I, I feel, I don't know, I feel odd often. The odd guy. I stand out. And honestly, it's, 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 it's gotten a little better maybe, but at the same time, I feel like I'm, just t- I'm, t- I'm kind of tired of it. I don't like standing out. And so when I visit the Bay Area, it's much, I'm much more comfortable I have to say. The mother of your children is a white woman. Yes. How does that fit into the social equation, a racial equation, the effect perhaps on your children? That's a big question. My children um, both identify with being black. Once again, my family is all over the map in terms of color. My grandmother is often, or was often mistaken for white. Within my family, race has not much importance at all. My wife being white was like, ah, you know, well, one more white person in the family, so what? It didn't really matter to anybody. I'm sure there were some people in the family that thought, oh, well, it would have been better if William had married a black woman, but How about from her side of the family? Her side of the family is really, really small. Basically, her immediate family is the only ones I know. I think they've been very accepting. They've been very accepting of of me and our children and so forth, and, and my family. We're visiting with Bill Durham from Mendocino County, California, to discuss his experiences as a 59-year-old black man in America and what can be done to relieve racism. You're listening to Radio Curious. I'm Barry Vogel. Barack Obama, what is your observation of the consequence in racial relations in the United States of him being president? Well, I think there's, uh, at this point, a backlash. There's like a, 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 a white backlash against Obama being president. I really wish there was some mechanism that could measure what people would do if we could just change the color of such and such or so and so. I often say to myself, if... If Barack Obama had started a war 
against a sovereign nation based on they have blankety blank weapons of mass destruction let's be specific and then um, we actually attack that nation and destroy their infrastructure and it's determined that the weapons of mass destruction did not exist the parents of US service men and women who lost their lives in that conflict would be absolutely outraged they would want Obama's head but George W. Bush, he gets a pass. I Like I said, I wish there was some mechanism that we could just like change people's color and say, oh, gee, this is how it went. I wish we could change Trayvon Martin's color and say, look, America, all we had to do was make him a white boy and he's still alive. And so many others. I wish we could have an A-B comparison so white America could really see how different it is, how difficult it can be to be a person of color in this nation. How can we do that? Our conversation, your stories, your life experience shares it. It begins to vocalize it. But beyond that? I'm really, really not sure how this could get across because the mainstream media is constantly bombarding us, really, with um, stereotypes. And once again, I think fear is this huge factor that is deep in America's psyche. Once I was... Um, late to pick up um, my wife at the uh, airport in Oakland. And I was walking down the, in front of the terminals on this sidewalk. And I was walking really fast because I was late. I was wearing black jeans and a black leather jacket, which actually I thought looked pretty sharp at the time. And there was a white family they're putting luggage in their car in the street. And as I walked by, this little white boy, about five years old, turns around and he said, Mommy, there's a bad guy. And I thought, Jesus Christ, man. It's like, how deep can this go? This boy is only five years old, and he already knows in his heart of heart, black people, black men are the bad guy and to be feared. To be feared and people do really crazy stuff when they are afraid have you um, suffered the experiences uh, of crazy stuff when you were around people who are afraid of you because of the color of your skin I'm sure I'm sure it's difficult to point at a particular situation because we don't have the AB comparator that we were talking about earlier. But often I've seen it like, you know, like I said, like when I was a kid just running up the running down the street and, and women, t um, um, white women will put their purse from one, you know, change the, which shoulder they have their purse on all the way to, uh, one time I got ready to go into my apartment and the guitar player in the band I lived in, I, I was playing with lived downstairs and I lived in the upstairs. 
and I looked at the mail in the mailbox, and it was all for him. So I just left the mail there. I just dropped it. It was a glass door. In the door, I could see the reflection of this guy walking down the sidewalk behind me. He was looking at me, like staring at me. And so I turned around. He walked down the street to the end, oh, I would say four houses down, there was a hedgerow. And the guy actually kind of kneeled down and kind of hid himself behind these bushes. So I walked to the end of the porch, the other end of the porch, where I could see him, and I walked down there and looked directly at him to let him know that I could see him, that he wasn't hiding from anybody. So then he stood up and uh, started walking back towards me. He actually turned up my walk, and when he got to where I thought he was about to say, does so-and-so live here or something like that, he reached behind his back, pulled out a pistol, stuck it in my face and said, take your hands out of your pockets real slow and don't move. And he was a cop and I was the, I was the suspect. I was the suspicious one for looking at my mail and putting it back. And him walking down the street and then hiding behind the bushes, I guess that's all okay. Part of being black is always being suspect. Always being suspect. If something's stolen, it's the black guy. That's the first guy we're going to think of that did it. And those are the kinds of stereotypes, those are the t kinds of misconceptions that are fed into people like the little white boy I saw at the airport from infancy. In terms of making things better race relation-wise, what can be done? The biggest thing would be for white Americans to acknowledge white privilege and to acknowledge, to really look at what white supremacy does in this country. I think those would be the first, or those would be huge steps toward healing. Honestly, I don't see much of a movement toward that. There's no real impetus for white America to examine white privilege. It's all fine and good. But though that would be, that would be huge. Because no one else can make no one else can get white America to examine that. And I think that would be the biggest step toward real racial harmony and, and respect, human dignity and respect in this country. When you say what white privilege does... Can you expound on that? White privilege keeps white people really from being able to look at, at this country and to look at themselves fairly from many, many different perspectives. And again, that brings us to the question of how can we get white America to examine white supremacy? Maybe one day the burden will just become too great.
I, I really don't know, Barry. I really do not know. It's a comfortable position to sit in. It really is. Um, I was at a conference put on by Youth Build USA, this nonprofit that I used to work for that um, taught um, young people with barriers to employment construction skills. And uh, one of the, the exercises at this conference on the very first day was this obstacle course with office stuff, desks, chairs, um, bookcases, and stuff like that used as obstacles. We were divided into two groups, and we had to get through this obstacle course blindfolded with the verbal instructions of one member of the group. And um, the first group did not do well. They kept uh, stepping on the lines, doing this, doing that. The uh, um, people that were, I don't know what you call them, the people that were monitoring the thing really held them to the rules. And then it, and they only got two people through the, through, the, um, through the course. Then it was my group's turn. And I had paid careful attention. You know, I thought we were going to do a better job. Actually, I thought this was an icebreaker. Really, I did. Exercise. And we went through the whole thing. We actually did much better, my group. And um, I noticed at the end, I was standing there watching, and my feet were on the line. And one of the monitors said to me, back up, you're on the line. Now, I was supposed to have been sent back to the beginning and have to go through the line again, or I mean through the obstacle course again. But he just asked me to step back. And that kind of went in one ear and out the other. I really kind of noticed that, but didn't. And then we won. And then they, the monitor said, well, any questions or anything now that we're all done? And someone asked, um, is there a reason why all the white people are on this one team and all the people of color are on the other team? And I looked around and that was the first time, honestly, that was the first time I really noticed that. And it was all youth build instructors and counselors and stuff, which is a pretty quote unquote colorblind group of people. And the monitor started laughing and he said, gee, it took you guys long enough to notice well, here was the skinny, here's the skinny, is that the people of color, we had white privilege. They helped us win. They helped us win. They held the white folks to every little rule. Every little thing they did wrong, they had to start over. But the people of color, they were actually nice to us and actually helped us. And the weird thing, here's the thing, is that when we knew that the game was rigged, it didn't matter. The white folks were still pissed off and the people of color were still, we still felt like the winners. And I was like, my God, it really is easy to accept white privilege. Everybody wants to be on the winning team. Well, Bill Durham, sitting here visiting with you and, and watching you as, as we talk, it sounds to me and, and looks to me like we're talking about events that, that should not occur, that uh, have had an awful effect on you. But I know you in other circumstances. Maybe you could talk about those. Well, 
I really like to be in service to others. I think that's very important in life. So I try to do things to help other people, like putting on the benefit for Doctors Without Borders and for uh, plowshares. And, and plowshares being a, a community facility that feeds, feeds homeless. Yes. It's good for me to help others. So it's a win-win situation. I was really gratified to hear my son telling me about his son, my grandson, getting money from his piggy bank to give to his father who was having a canned food drive on his own in Oakland. So I guess it passes down from generation to generation. I guess it's my, my love of justice that it kind of makes me happy, and then sometimes I, I have to be really angry. I have to be really angry at the world because it is so unjust. Well, Bill Durham, I want to thank you for being with us on Radio Curious. And before we close, um, in addition to um, the aha moment that you mentioned in, in your youth, is there another one that you could tell us about that uh, opened your eyes to the world or gave you a philosophy by which to live? A eureka moment? Um, in 1996, the death of a very close friend shook me and woke me up. I had become complacent in terms of the value of this life. It took something that jarring to make me realize that I had to do the things that I wanted to do right in the here and now and not wait and plan. That event is one of the reasons I wound up living here in Mendocino County. That takes us to the next question as to what would you like to do with the rest of your one precious life? On a personal level, I would like to be happy and have really good, strong relationships with people and friends and and enjoy watching um, my family grow and my grandkids grow up. And on more of a world view, I would really like this, to see the world become a more just place, a more truthful place where the truth matters more and that everyone is more respected for being a human being, and that's all it takes to be respected, is to be a human being. And finally, Bill Durham, is there a book that you could recommend to our listeners? A book called Supernatural by Graham Hancock that delves into the beginnings of human consciousness, a lot of other phenomena as well. Bill Durham, thank you very much for being with us on Radio Curious. Thank you. Thank you. Bill Durham of Mendocino County, California, has been our guest in this Radio Curious series on the effects of racism and how to end it. The book he recommends is Supernatural, Meeting with the Ancient Teachers of Mankind by Graham Hancock. This program was recorded on February 12, 2015.
There are over 500 editions of Radio Curious on our website, radiocurious.org. They're free to listen, download, and share as you wish. The email address is curious at radiocurious.org or snail mail at 280 North Oak Street, Ukiah, that's U-K-I-A-H, California, 95482. And the phone is 707-462-6541. Christina Onestead is the assistant producer, and I'm host and producer, Barry Vogel. Thank you for listening.